Delivers again. Fastball low. He walked him. It's the pitch. Missed high with the fastball. That'll be ball four. Way outside. He walked in a run. So that'll break up the shutout. Swung, lifted into center, deep, back on it goes Jackson. Trailing, he's there, he's, oh, he dropped it! And two runs, three runs are gonna score, and Chattanooga takes the lead, my goodness. Wow. Lefty on righty, first pitch, and he hit him. Here's the 0-1 on the way. He hit him. Here's the 1-2, he hit him. On the way, he walked him on four straight. Next offering on the way. In the dirt, going to skip past Cuero. Now a wild pitch will score another run. And Rocket City loses this one 7-3. And, folks, you're not going to believe the line score. Chattanooga, seven runs on no hits. What the hell is that? Stone on air coming up. Completely unsanctioned by the church. Stone on air. Whatever, let's just do this. Stone on air. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Give human beings opportunity, and you'll be absolutely shocked with what people do with it. Stone on air coming up. Well, welcome in, everybody. It is the 13th of April, the second Thursday of the best month of the year. Hashtag my month. How in the hell are you? I'm doing fantastic. My name is Brian Stone. This is the Stone on Air podcast found every Thursday by thousands in the city of Chattanooga and the surrounding areas. Lots to get to today. Going to have some fun on today's show. Glad you're able to find it. Stone on air on all social media. It is the supposed for-profit venture known as the Stone on Air podcast. Yeah, that was wild. I'm sure you know by now. It was over the weekend, um, this past weekend. The Lookouts opened the season in Huntsville called the Rocket City Trash Pandas, which is just a different way of referring to a raccoon, I'm pretty certain. And they were no hit and scored seven runs in the ninth inning to win the game, seven to five. I think that was the final. It was two nothing going into the ninth. Rocket City, and then the final was 7-5, to five, I believe. Either way, the Lookout scored seven runs in the ninth on um, uh, zero hits, as you just heard. Thank you for finding the show. Coming up on today's program, as many in the radio and podcast industry would call it, I call it today's show. I'll get you a pretty typical layout, as per usual. In the second segment of the show, I... Warned everybody of this in the spring of last year. Now, anybody who wanted to pay any amount of attention could have warned themselves about it, but I'll take a little credit for it. Closing of primaries looks to be right around the corner here in the state of Tennessee, and there's a bill which is not to close primaries because that one failed earlier this year, but there's an additional bill that's a little confusing. I'll look at that in the second segment of the show, as well as look at this 1998 Enigma magazine that I stumbled on in the last couple of weeks in the garage as I have a long-term clean-out-the-garage project going right now, and the founder and publisher passed away about uh, three weeks ago or so. If you listen to the show every week, you already know that. His name was Dave Weinthal, and I want to just look at some things from the Enigma magazine in 1998. And in the final segment of the show, a little bit different, a story that maybe I shouldn't tell from the treatment uh, from a month and a half ago. But the majority of the segment will be taken up by audio that I pulled from the Jason Isbell documentary, Rock Doc, on HBO Max. I believe it's called Running With My Eyes Closed. I'm going on memory on that. I didn't write it down. But it wasn't very good, to be honest with you. This is kind of one of those situations where I watch it so you don't have to. I'll explain more of that when I get into the third segment of the show. I'll get you three pieces of audio here in the open about 10 minutes from right now. The make me think thing, the coolest thing, and the pretty accurate thing coming up as I close out the open. But a handful of things to get to here on the front end. I will go to the Lookouts game this weekend. Opening week is This week, I know a lot of people are loving going to the ballpark. I am never going to go to opening week or opening day 
at any baseball game anymore because it is such a zoo. And oftentimes, I'll just skip the first week all the way around. Well, I'm not going to skip the first week around going this go around because the Mississippi Braves are in town. And generally, I haven't looked at the schedule this year, but most of the time, the AA Braves affiliate is only in Chattanooga once a year. And it just so happens to be the opening uh, series of the year. The other reason is, on Friday, the treatment facility I was in is having their uh, Saturday big night out at the ballpark with the pavilion out in right field. If you've been to the stadium, you know what I'm talking about, the big uh, rented-out kind of uh, event space area. They're having an alumni, as they call it, night, and um, I want to go, and I want to see what it'll be like. I hope people I know will be there. I know at least... Some people from the facility will be there, but I hope some people who were inpatient while I was is there so we can swap notes and compare uh, and contrast the way things have been the last month and a half. I'd be very interested in that. And it's free picnic food and uh, Cokes. So it's like basically eating at the ballpark, at the Little League ballpark for free, watching the Braves and the Lookouts on a gorgeous, it looks like the weather is going to be pretty good this weekend. So that's where you'll find me if you happen to be Looking for me. Speaking of baseball, we're about two weeks in now. Braves looking very, very good. And the new baseball rules. I won't do this baseball stuff for long. But I I think I really like them. Except I'm blinking and these games are over. Now, I know that was the point. The pitch clock, if you're not aware. The changing of the the defensive alignments. They can't shift. uh, The bigger bases to encourage more stolen bases. There's more... uh, quote unquote if you will there's more stolen bases and there's a quicker game time and I've always been a little uh, scratched my head a little bit of this you know we want to hurry up and end these things he said whatever it is this is it takes too long I've never been at an event and thought damn it this is a good time it would be even better if it would end sooner I've never been in that scenario I do understand the picking up the pace of the game is a good idea. seems like it's working, but I like a three-hour game. Even a a three-and-a-half-hour game can be fine, but I think the majority of attention spans, young and old, have shrunk so much, baseball thinks it's a good idea to speed the games up and be quicker, and if it works, it works. It's still a ball game. It's still fun. Happy to see the Braves doing well. And they've even changed the the rules in many of these ballparks around the country. I don't know if they've done it in Atlanta yet or here in Chattanooga for that matter. But seventh inning was usually the last call for alcohol. Well, many ballparks have now moved that to the eighth inning because the games are moving so fast. Big thanks to everybody out there who wished me a happy birthday on Facebook and then the uh, subsequent uh, posts that I put about uh, 50 days sober and thank you for um for for the happy birthday wishes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses and likes and loves and thumbs ups and a bunch of encouraging stuff and as much as i give facebook a lot of spit and a lot of uh static and 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 call it a wasteland it is nice and i really do uh, appreciate it so far april has been fabulous speaking of facebook i <laughs> i think i finally did it I think I've been blocked by Rhonda Thurman. My trolling went too far. I actually kind of feel bad about it. Not because I'm you know, worried about her feelings. I am mad or upset at myself that I now won't be able to see the idiocy that she continues to put out on social media, at least on Facebook anyway. She's uh, uh, on the school board. She's a loud mouth. She was MAGA before there was MAGA. Uh, and it's just fun. And I, I put something out there just to be a jerk and I, and it didn't, it it was unnecessary. I shouldn't have done it. I didn't cuss or get really, you know, really nasty or, or totally a D bag about it, but it was unnecessary. And I finally got blocked by her. Um, let's see. Got to move quick here. Nick, let's go. It's going to be on the show. It's been confirmed between now and May 5th. Nick Lutzko will be my guest. I am assuming I'll do it by phone. I don't know. Maybe we'll do something remote. Maybe with live performance. Probably not. It'll likely just be on the phone to catch up. He is going to be the uh, the performer at the 
grand opening of the new Signal, which is moving into the building over on the Choo Choo campus that Track 29 supposedly was going to move into. What was that? Centennial something or other building. It was it was an event space for the most part, and I guess in, in some ways it still is and will continue to be that. Also, it will be the new Signal Performance Hall or Signal Music, whatever they call it exactly. I don't know. I'm looking forward to that just to see what the space looks like, how it feels, how it sounds, and to see Nick. He is playing shows all over, primarily on the eastern side of the country, east of the uh, the Mississippi, but Washington, New York, Chicago, um, several other places, nowhere near Chattanooga, and is selling out regularly. Small venues, to be sure, but not like 200-seat clubs. We're talking 500 to 1,500-seat rooms. He's filling these in major cities, sometimes back-to-back nights. And here in Chattanooga, I would be surprised, because it's the grand opening, it'll probably do pretty well. But he comes and plays a show at Wanderlinger just a couple of years ago, and almost nobody shows up. He plays a show at the old Revelry Room, and, you know, he gets an okay little crowd of a few hundred people, a couple, three hundred people. But he plays all over major cities and sells the room out and gets massive social media presence and um, interactions. He is a star in certain areas of quite literally the world. He has international followings, yet right here in Chattanooga that he once had a pretty good following starting to build, he almost never plays here. And if he does, which I guess the reason is, he doesn't do it. It barely gets a gate. It barely pulls a door. And um, this is going to be a free show if, I, if I'm if i remembering seeing this correctly. If I'm wrong on that, I'm sorry. Come off your wallet and go anyway. It'll be fun. But I'm pretty sure it's a free show for the grand opening of The Signal. Nick Lutzko will be my guest shortly. More on that soon. Also more on this uh, next month. I will be on with Ryan Oyers, Britpop and Beyond on 88.1 WUTC in May. We're going to record the show. It is a record in advance show on May 7th, I believe, as a text he sent me just the other day. We'll be just playing uh, British music for me. That I, I'm, if, if he gives me full reins on the set list, it'll be all stuff from the 1990s. That should be um, a lot of fun. And a couple other things here. Driving and crying, coming to Barrel House Ballroom. So hashtag my other month just got better June and April. Say it every year. If I have a good June and I have a good April, well, first day April, then the June, then the other 10 months are just house money. And I usually come out ahead on those two months. And so far, so good this go around. And I have only been to the Barrel House Ballroom for one show so far. So looking forward to that. But that won't be until June. And then, of course, there's the bank shooting in Louisiana, Louisiana, in Louisville, excuse me. A couple of days ago, I'm not going to go on and on and on about it, but it barely made the front page here locally on the Chattanooga Times Free Press front page below the fold, bottom of the page. And then two days later, which would be today, an update on the story. Excuse me. No, that would be just one day later. That would be Wednesday. The update of the story was on page A4. That's how little a lot of these things are catching our eye anymore. And it's the school gets everybody a little bit more. And then because the last one was in Nashville, it stayed hot around here for a while. But what, five dead at a bank? And then one of the big talking points amongst the uh, I love guns types is, well, we should guard our children like we guard our money and our politicians and our precious metals with more guns. Well, guess what? This was a bank and they killed five people. All right. So there you go. Now what? There's, I don't know if there's an armed guard at this bank or at every bank. People are going to shoot people because guns are easily accessible, and I'll just stop right there before I start to get pissed off and do what I always do, which I don't want to be mad today because there's no reason to. Let's go ahead and shift gears. Three pieces of audio for you here before I get to the middle segment and the bona fide voting bill is what I'm calling it, and along with looking at this Enigma from 1998. We will start off with things that make me think or the make me think thing. It is, I always defend Gen X 
but maybe I'm not always correct on defending Gen X so much. Um, tell me what you think. I know boomers get a lot of shit, and rightfully so, and so do millennials. Everyone thinks we're fucking lazy and we can't buy houses, and Gen Z gets some shit too. Tiny attention span, spends all their time on TikTok. Who let Gen X off the hook? Why aren't we talking shit about those guys? They were teenagers in the 80s and were in their 20s in the 90s. Those are the sickest decades. They had the coolest music and the best movies. Where are those motherfuckers now? Why aren't they getting heat for not saving the planet and not making good on all their promises? They were supposed to usher in some technology-driven utopia. A bunch of those fuckers started these mega tech companies. They were the first people to have the internet, and I think they blew it. But let's not forget to talk shit about Gen X as well. I mean, he's not wrong. I consider myself a young Gen Xer. I mean, I wasn't a in my 20s in the 90s, but I was in my mid to late teens in the 90s, and he's definitely not completely wrong on that, though I do believe Gen X is the most apathetic, could, couldn't care less generation of the last uh, five of them. Anyway, this is the coolest thing. I just stumbled on it a few minutes ago because I was trying to find out something quickly. Don't mean to ram it down your throat with this not drinking stuff anymore, but this is Nikki Glaser on with um, Joe Rogan, and it's... Uh, I, I'm starting to identify with the people who have this kind of message. This is today's coolest thing. I'll tell you, I drank every single night of my life, and I never thought I could live without it. It was just, wow. I was just like anyone listening that's like, no, no, no. You don't understand all my friends drink. It's my life. It's my social life. It's my work life. It was everything to me. It's all I look forward to. Yeah, I'll never go like this when my friend enters a bar again. Woo! Like I'll never that's I'll never do that. I will never greet a friend with she's here. Yes, 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 yeah. That's that's Is that you? That was me. That was like that that's something I miss. I'll never have that kind of two drink enthusiasm anymore. But because I don't drink, I am fucking killing it. My life changed. I can trace my careers before and after. I'm starting to identify with these kinds of things I see on social media. It wasn't that long ago that there was no comprehension in the history of brain power where I could have imagined a life that didn't involve daily alcohol consumption. And not just that, but also consistent, drunken, intoxicated states. I just couldn't imagine life without it. And while I'm still working hard every day to get through every single day without doing it, Every it literally is every day I feel better about it. It's it's remarkable. It really, really is. More on that probably later on into the show and later on for the rest of my life, for that matter. And the final one here, I've got the pretty accurate thing. It's the guy that that describes music from the 1990s. He might do the 60s and 70s as well, but primarily from the 1990s, if he's describing it to his children now, today's pretty accurate thing is how he describes Pearl Jam. What really can you say about program that hasn't already been said? He mumbles. That's just kind of his thing. I don't know how he's gotten away with it all these years. Out of the different denominations of grunge, they're kind of the bluesy offshoot. There was a lot of guitar solos and stuff for it being grunge. And I find nowadays, out of those four programs, the one that interests me the least anymore, that could just be that they're the ones still putting out stuff and I kind of gotten bored of it. Then again, nothing's going to hit like 10 did when you were 14. Enunciating is for posers. <laughs> Enunciating is for posers. And he's absolutely correct there, though, that nothing will hit quite the same as 10 did when you were 14 or 24 or 34, for that matter, back in that time frame, the wonderful 1990s in my Dear friend uh, Barry Corder on the, uh, I'll be paraphrasing here, saying that I that when he was talking about me on one of their uh, the What podcast, that I am just perpetually wishing that I was 14. I use that exact age, uh, discovering Pearl Jam for the first time again. And just for the record, I was 12 when I discovered Pearl Jam in 1992. 
So what's going on with the bona fide voting? There's that word again. And this bill trying to be pushed through the Tennessee State House. And a look back at an Enigma magazine from 1998. That is coming up next. Otherwise, open primaries must be done away with in the state of Tennessee because of recent abuses that occurred in not only Hamilton County, but across the state of Tennessee, rendering Republican primaries a tragic mockery, waste of time and money. So they're now claiming that if you are a bona fide Democratic voter with a history of voting in the, for, the, for Democratic nominees, you are disqualified from voting in a long-time-running open primary system here in most of the state of Tennessee, but certainly here in Hamilton County. They are literally making this up. They're going to try to close primaries eventually, and this is the first step. And it's Goose. Saturday night at Riverbend in June. That rejoin there was, um, wait, who was that? Oh, that's right. That was me. That was me in the rejoin from roughly one year ago. I forgot to pull the exact date. Just following the fallout from the primary of the mayor race here in Hamilton County between asshole Weston Womp, bumpkin Matt Hollander, and the uh, Marjorie Trailer Park Green of Hamilton County, Sabrina Trailer Park Smedley Turner. And it is my opinion, and I don't even really think it's my opinion, I think it's been borderline facted out that Weston won because of crossover voting, Democrats voting in the Republican primary which is an open primary in the county and the state, and it has been for a very, very, very long time. And for a few days afterwards, a 318-vote margin was the difference between a second-place uh, Trailer Park Smedley and um, Asshole Weston Womp, and, and I believe that that 318-plus was coming from crossover voting, which I don't understand. Well, let me rephrase. I do understand why lawmakers don't like this, but I don't understand why anybody as a voter would be against open primaries. So I'm going to put a pin in that right now for a few minutes, and then I'm going to come back to that with this new bill. Geo-backed bill requires polling places to warn voters against voting in quote-unquote wrong primary. I'll get all back to that here in a minute. First, I want to get this um, in here and uh, I thought this was just, it was so fun to run into this, especially after uh, Dave Weinthal passing the other week. And then just a lot of reminiscing and a lot of just, you know, th- good thoughts of old times of, of old media, like uh, zines, as often they were called, or alt weeklies. And I don't remember if how long Enigma ran as a weekly publication. I know it was a monthly towards the end. I think it was a weekly for a while. I don't know. This is January 8th, 1998. One of my favorite years of my life, 1998. I wasn't even 18 years old yet when this was uh, published. I was four months away from being 18 years old. And I just figured I'd just take a look at some of the things that are in it, some of the advertisements, some of the things that were going on. At that time, um, Pager Warehouse over at Airport Plaza off Lee Highway. Big uh, quarter page uh, of advertisement here. There's a Chattanooga Hempery that was on Cherokee Boulevard. I don't quite remember that exactly. Mainly foreign car parts on their way to Ingle Stadium back in the day. You'd pass Main Street and um, Miss Griffin's Hot Dogs. And then up on the left, as you hung a right at Central that was mainly foreign uh, car parts. This is one I really thought was cool. I don't have re- a, a recollection of the Big Nine Productions. 
It is a concert promotion, lighting and sound, talent bookings, advertising and promotion, and the names on the bottom of the Big Nine Productions, David Little, who I have a little recognition, uh, name recognition of that name, and then a great, great, great friend of mine and a great friend to all people of entertainment, concerts, and just fun in the city of Chattanooga for the last three-plus decades, Mike Dewar on the Big Nine Production Advertisements from the Enigma 1998. I'll get you a gravy stains from Wally Wachowski here in just a minute. Uh, other advertisements in this publication from the New Moon Gallery, uh, Stone Lion, Fat Wraps, that was above the attic. I don't think the attic was open, or excuse me, Fat Wraps was below, the attic was above, I don't think the attic was open yet. I started going to the attic before I was 21 years old, so right around the year 2000, and so not sure if that was open yet. There was David's on Vine over by the school, the only bar near the school where most of the time people were drinking underage, at least in my experience with David's later into the next century. My guess is that was probably the same in 19. 98 and then there's the concert calendar which was always my favorite part of the enigma magazine which i'll look at here in just a second there's not much to speak of because there never was much to speak of in the 90s but it also had a big two and a half page uh, movie listings the chattanooga movie theaters regal carmike all the old ones you remember and um times and uh, uh just old school movie listings and Many of those at this time, or at that time, I should say, I'll mention that I rec recognize Air Force One. Uh, as Good As It Gets was a huge flick back then. Uh, G.I. Jane with Demi Moore shaving her head. Everybody was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. Um, Jackie Brown, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, which is one of my favorite Tarantino flicks. That thing, that is a fantastic film. Mortal Kombat made its debut in, uh, I think, as it says, it, it doesn't say two or three or four, so I guess it was the first one in 1998. Scream 2, they were already on a sequel at that point, and The Titanic. Also, one of my favorite movies of, uh, of all time was in the theaters in January of 1998. Upcoming films to be released later on that year, Goodwill Hunting, and Wag the Dog are the only two that stick out as anything that I care. Just Deconstructing Harry, many would have remembered the uh, Woody Allen uh, film. And uh, Spice World, the Spice Girls and their movie came out later that year as well. And music from that time frame here locally, the Governors had 90 proof that weekend, January of 1998. The Bay had pushed down and turn. I don't remember if that's a local band, regional. I'm not sure. I do remember that name, but I don't remember it well. The Blue Angel, over the course of that weekend, had Roger Allen Wade. Remember the Blue Angel over on uh, Cherokee. I guess that's Frazier at that point. It would later go on to be the Stone Cup, and then it would later go on to what it is now, the Brujas or Brew House, or Brew, however it's called. Then the Stone Cup, before Brew House came, Brew House, the Stone Cup moved a couple, couple doors down. I'm pretty sure the Stone Cup's still there, and I believe the Dark Roast is right there, or maybe it took Stone Cup's place. I'm not sure. But Roger Allen Wade that weekend, and also on the concert calendar from that day, or that weekend, was Emily Boyd. Not yet going by Emily Kate Boyd, She's my age, so she would have been 17 or 18 at this time. And we, a lot of us hung out at the Blue Angel at 17, 18, 19 years old. She is the daughter of asshole, former uh, district, uh, my district, District 8 County Commissioner Tim Boyd. And um, as many times as I've been around her and as much as I have knew Tim before he started to hate me after he moved away, she still acts like she's never met me and doesn't have a damn clue who I am. So, not a huge fan of Emily Kate Boyd, who also got a job with Soundcore, if you remember. I made a kind of a big deal about, at least a mention on the show. Right after 
Tim Boyd, while he was still on the county commission, donated several thousand dollars to the Soundcore organization, which I'm Stratton Tingle. He's my guy. I'm a fan. I'm not mad at him. I think what they do serves a purpose, kind of, sort of. But I'm happy for him to keep He's been able to keep it going this long. But right after he was given a donation from the county commission, guess who gets a job at Soundcore? You guessed it. If you guessed Emily K. Boyd. At a time which I've been told personally by Stratton himself that there was no budget for additional employees, at least at one time. I know that can change, and it certainly can change when your dad, a county commissioner, gives thousands of dollars to the organization as long as you hire my daughter. So there you go. And then one more. Yesterday's was open in 1998. I don't know if that was one of the flash-in-the-pan reopenings of yesterday's or if it was still hanging on from the older times. But that weekend, Nilla, The Unsatisfied, and Fizzgig, all three bands that have members that I was friends with or at least very close acquaintances with. Of course, The Unsatisfied, to a certain degree, is almost kind of, sort of, a little bit still around. Fizzgig is long gone. Jay Lawson, Adam, why I can't remember his last name, Bill Jones, longtime friends of mine, sometimes nemesis, depending on what was going on in our personal lives. And then Nilla. I cannot remember who the members of Nilla were, but I knew a couple of those. So that was fun taking a look at that. And quickly, Gravy Stains from Wally, Wally Wachowski, formerly of WGOW for many, many, many years. Big old, huge, tall, I mean, well, tall too, but size of a house. A massive dude who was hilarious on the air, usually with his writing as well. Men's Rules to Live By from Wally Wachowski, Gravy Stains from 1998. A man renting movies must rent one killing movie for every chick movie. It's okay to watch a chick movie if you're guaranteed sex afterwards. Under no circumstances shall two men ever share an umbrella. If two men are in a public restroom, there shall be no conversation allowed. You're not there to talk. Preach, Wally. Preach. The minimum time you have to wait on a guy is five minutes. For a girl, you have to wait ten minutes unless she's a C cup or better. Then you wait for 30 minutes. Bitching about the brand of beers in a buddy's fridge is unacceptable. You may, however, comment if the temperature is not cold enough. No man is ever required to buy another guy a birthday present. He can, but it must be sports-related or edible. This goes to 20 of these. This is number eight. If a man's zipper is down, that's his business. Don't look, don't tell. Hey, let your buddy know if it flies down now. I disagree on that one. The universal compensation for helping a buddy move is beer. That one still stands the test of time. A man must never own a cat or like his wife's cat. Well, anybody who knows me knows I completely disagree with that. Unless you are in prison, never fight naked. Okay? That's fine. Uh, Friends don't let friends wear Speedos. Ever. Number 14, never hesitate to reach for the last piece of pizza or the last beer, but not both. That's just plain mean. Number 15, gravy stains from Wally. Men's rules to live by always split aces and eights in blackjack. Don't argue. I don't play blackjack, so I barely know what that means. Unless he murdered someone in your immediate family, you must bail a friend out of jail in at least 12 hours. Number 17, if you have known a guy at least 72 hours, his sister is off limits. I'm totally down with this. Don't date your friend's sister unless it's way on down later in life. Number 18, if a buddy breaks up with someone, you must ask his permission before you ask her out. He must give it to you. That's another one that stands the test. Don't date my ex, bro, not without asking me about it. The final two, if a buddy's wife, mom, or girlfriend asks you questions about your buddy, you must become ignorant and answer nothing. And if a friend asks you to go shopping with him, then find a new friend. All men must memorize these rules. See you next week. Signed, Wally Wachowski, 
men men's rules to live by from the enigma in 1998. So what are the GOP and the state house trying to do here? They tried to close voting in uh, primaries earlier this year. I missed that. I didn't see that. And I'm actually shocked that it didn't pass. It looks like it didn't even come close. That is absolutely shocking to me. I think that was in February. I don't have that immediately right in front of me right now. But I was not paying attention to a lot of things going on in February. I guess that's why I didn't see it. A GOP-backed bill requiring Tennessee polling places to display signs saying it is a crime to vote in a primary without being a bona fide party member advanced Tuesday in the legislature. The bill's sponsor, dude from Lebanon, said the intent of the bill is to, quote, remind people they have to vote in the proper political party that they're in. Uh, Senator, a Democrat out of Nashville, questioned whether such signage could discourage people from voting. He noted that the state does not require any formal party registration in order to vote in primaries, and such signage could serve to wrongly signal to voters that they have failed to take the necessary step before voting. And it goes on to quote a couple of them about, is this really meaningful? Is this really discouraging people from voting? What is the point of all of this? The proposed law requires yellow signs to be prominently displayed at each voting site that warn voters that casting a ballot in a political party party's primary without being a member of or affiliated with that party is a class C misdemeanor. Tennessee currently has open primaries. Voters are not required to register with a political party in order to vote, leaving it to voters to self-declare their party affiliation and vote in the primary of their choosing. State law specifies a voter must cast a ballot in a primary who is a, quote, bona fide member of an affiliate affiliated and affiliated with the political party in whose primary the voter seeks to vote, unquote, or at the time voter seeks to vote, the voter declares allegiance to that party. It's so open-ended. It's such nonsense that it's worded that way to begin with. And this is such a waste of time, Bill, to pull th- push through to put up a sign trying to basically scare people away from voting. I don't think it's going to work, but that's what they're trying to do effectively. They couldn't get the poll, the, the uh, primaries closed so this is the next thing that they're going to try to do. A violation of the law is a Class C misdemeanor, which comes with the punishment of up to 30 days in jail or a fine of 50 bucks. Something that has actually never happened before. So this is all a bunch of nothing, just like I mentioned in the front. And that was right after uh, the, the mayor race last year. So that was in the spring of 22, a year ago. I'm looking at this laughing. A year later, I'm looking at it continuing to laugh. And if there's nothing else that comes out of all this, I finally figured it out because I'm becoming so jaded and so apathetic and so done with politics in this country and really, quite frankly, recently, politics in this state. I love the state of Tennessee. I haven't spent a second on the Tennessee Three. I didn't spend a minute talking about the uh, expulsion of the two black dudes and the non-expulsion of the middle-aged white Democrat from the Tennessee House. It looks like they're uh, Senate, I should say. They're all they're going to be back in anyway. They're now just become stars within their political parties. And uh, really all this attention is done is put them on a higher pedestal. I didn't spend any amount of time talking about any of that. But what I have figured out is now I am going to vote in the Republican primary every time just for the fun of it. And come and get me. Class C misdemeanor. Come and put the cuffs on me. Find me 50 bucks. What did I say? Jail for a month or whatever it is. Come and get me. Because I've been wondering, how am I even going to vote going forward? If it's not for a Hamilton County election, if it's for a state election, and and certainly the federal election, I'm not sure what I'm going to do going forward. I know what I'm going to do in the state of Tennessee. I'm going to vote in the Republican Party. And if I have to just write in just to be a dick about it, I will. I'll do it. I'll laugh about it. I'll have fun with it. And I'll talk about it on this podcast every single goddamn time I do it. Come and get me and put me in jail if that's what you're trying to do, Tennessee state lawmakers. This state is way too cool. It is way too fun. It is way too scenic. It's way too beautiful. It's way too historic to have such pathetic assholes that are running it in our state legislature. I love the state of Tennessee, but the politics around here are absolutely bananas off the charts. 
And Nashville now trying to cut down their city and county commission, city and uh, county uh, combined government from 40 seats to 20 to try to weed out all the black people and the poor people from being able to have a voice. Nashville's racist as hell, just like a lot of the uh, D.C. politicians are as well. There's a lot to love about this state. Virtually everything about it, except its politics, it's absolutely disgusting. Coming up next, another installment, a quick story maybe I shouldn't tell, but a majority of this will be taken up by audio I pulled from the HBO doc from Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires called, as I mentioned, I think, Running with my eyes closed. You're on your own. Look it up if you want to know for sure what it's called. But I'm not suggesting you watch it. I'm suggesting you listen to the next segment next. Exactly what I wanted to hear. Zoneonair.com. Jason and I have known each other for 18 years. We were friends at first, but like you kind of know. I met Amanda when I was recording with the drive-by truckers. I went into town to go get drunk, and Amanda was playing with uh, thrift store cowboys. There was, you know, hardly anybody at the show. He got a folding chair and went and sat in the middle of the floor. There's like, I don't know, probably like 12 people there. I thought that was pretty ballsy. I said, aren't you supposed to be famous? We were just friends for years, but I'd probably always been in love with her. During that time, I never thought really that I'd be enough for him, just because, well, he liked to hang out with women and he'd like to, you know, do SEX. <laughs> Funny aside, I don't know if this is important for the documentary or not, but I did make him take an STD test before I hooked up with him. And then for like the first year, he had it hanging on the refrigerator. This is It Gets Easier. Strictly about quitting drinking. Hold down your liquor or swallow your pride. Later on, the lyrics are, Last night I did myself a favor. I called in sick and went downtown. Drove past the local bar. A cop car got behind my car. Here it is. I wish you would pull me over right now. I've thought about that many times. Why can't I get pulled over when I'm not drinking in the car? I wish you would pull me over now. So a friend of mine got a hold of me and or texted me and said, hey, there's a uh, Isbul doc on HBO. And I, I'll just say, if if you're a really big Jason Isbul fan, then you should watch it because you'll enjoy it. If you only kind of like Isbul or have only heard of him or only familiar with some of his music or... You know, he's just another guy who plays a few songs you've heard of before. I wouldn't waste your time. It's an hour and 40 minutes, which makes it about 40 minutes too long. They could have done everything they did within uh, a good 60 minutes or maybe even just 90, but it goes to an hour 40. And it was really strange. Some parts of it were so good, and I'll highlight a lot of that here as I'll play some of this for you, and i got to move quickly here. But his wife, Amanda Shires, I walked away from not liking it all. And I don't know a lot about her other than she plays violin on his music a lot, and she's a pretty woman, and that's about as far as it goes. I don't know a song of hers. I don't know anything about her. I just know they're married and they have a kid. But this whole doc had this really reality TV feel to it, especially when it came to her portion of it. They're about, you know, they're close to breaking up. Oh, I'm so, you know, we might get divorced. And they don't really say that. It felt very contrived. It felt like there was a lot of fake dialogue. Even if you listen to the end of that rejoin there where she's like, I didn't know if we'd get together because he likes women and, you know, the S-E-X. And I made him get a, 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 a STD test. Like, it, it, it felt like she was acting virtually the entire time. Also, about 
at least a third of her screen time, she's wearing these Jackie O style sunglasses that would, uh, you know, make the most flamboyant centerfold blush. So it, it really did feel like she was playing a part and the authenticity didn't really feel there. But if you weeded in and out of that mess, there was still a lot of fun stuff and a lot of interesting things, mostly things I already knew. So I play audio on this show so you don't have to waste an hour and 40 minutes and get HBO Max, which just got bought out by or uh, got conglomerated in with uh, Discovery Plus, and now it's going to be called Max and blah, 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 whatever. Start off here with this is Isabel talks about how young people in his hometown of Florence, Alabama, they were uh, either normal or they were crazy, and it was today years old when I found out what the 40 unit was, which, of course, is the name of his band. There was no culture of any kind of psychological help for children or adults whatsoever. You were either fine or you were crazy. And if you were crazy, you went to the 400 unit. If you were fine, you shut up and you went to work. If not for playing the guitar, singing, writing songs, then I would have been lost in that middle ground between fine and crazy. If that hadn't been there, I don't, you know, I really don't know if I would have been able to deal with the world at all. I just checked out. The band's name comes from the 400 unit, a colloquial name for the psychiatric ward of Eliza Coffey Memorial Hospital in Florence, Alabama. It was originally called the 400 unit because it was to be in a separate building from the main three-story hospital. I was today years old when I found that out. This is Jason and Amanda talking about the challenges of being in a relationship and working together. Trying to navigate being in a relationship where we are family and we are married and we have a child together and also working in the studio you know is a challenge and uh, I don't mean this to be an excuse for anything you know it's my own damn fault but when I have a hard day I can't just go home and have a drink and used to that's what I would do so there's no escape for me there's a thing though there's a puzzle you're working out that you need to figure out i think there's no escape there is an escape you just have to figure out what it is and it's music we know that right but i'm not going to go home from the studio and sit and play guitar all night well no i know but i'm i'm just saying then you should find another one and he goes you know on what I mean? he goes on to talk about how his daughter really is that inspiration but that, i thought that was kind of funny yeah i'm not going to go home and just play guitar some more i already did it all day long. This is where it got real good for me because of my love for the drive-by truckers. This is Patterson Hood, the founding member and the most prolific songwriter of the band, uh, talking and along with the band manager and Jason Isabel himself about joining the drive-by truckers. Jason is extremely hard on himself, and it can be painful for everyone around him. I knew the first moment I ever met him, he was destined for greatness but jason was young when he joined our band i'd always planned on being in a band i'd always had that as my driving force the drive-by truckers had played in nashville at one of the first americana music conferences and the next day the guitar player didn't show up and jason just sat in and i was like man you mind if i play with you guys since you're one short He was like a way next level guitar player. Jason's playing along like he had been rehearsing it for years. So at the end of the night, it's like, hey man, get in the van. Let's go, let's go play some rock and roll. <laughs> I, I think he was, I know we're the same age. I think he joined the band in 2002, which would have made him 22 years old. And the rest of the band were in their mid thirties. Patterson and uh, also the manager of the band continue uh, now jumped to ahead of several years later, about five or so years later, when they fired Jason Isbell from the band, primarily because of his drinking and his overall destructive lifestyle. He was, in a lot of ways, spiraling out of control, and I saw the potential for that to get a lot worse. There was a point where I was definitely worried about, you know, him dying. The situation with Jason had gotten so bad that it was just, it was making us not enjoy our job. It was threatening the life of the band. Honestly, I think his ego also started growing and getting out of control. And there's only so much people can take. Patterson and Cooley just put a stop to it. It was shocking to me when I was fired. But in hindsight, it should not have been 
shocking to me now. I look back and go, yeah, I would have fired that guy too. What, a, what an asshole. Breaking up with Jason damn near killed me in a lot of ways. I mean, I was beyond heartbroken to see it ending like that. I was terrified about what it was going to do to the band because he was a vital, important part of what we were doing. That's a big thing to lose. Sorry, I remember at the time I was heartbroken that they they fired him, and I said the truckers are nothing without Isbel, and Isbel's nothing without the truckers, and I was completely wrong. And I have family members and friends in the uh, in the middle state of, uh, of of Georgia from Athens, but now primarily in Atlanta who know the truckers pretty well, and I have been around them many times. And early on, I, I, I was around Jason Isbell all the time. Now, I'm not trying to act like he was my friend or we knew each other well, but I had his phone number. We had him on the radio a lot. He cut me a lot of, hey, you're listening to The Wall. Hey, you're listening to talk radio. I'm Jason Isbell from the truckers. And so I had a little bit of a working relationship with him, and I was around a lot of people who were hanging with him after the shows when he would come in and do solo gigs when the truckers were not uh, were not touring and he would be like opening for Will Hogue if you remember that guy at Rhythm and Brews and there'd be literally 10 people there and so afterwards yeah we're all sitting around drinking and then many of them would go off to big cocaine fueled parties that I would only hear about that I uh, I didn't partake in at that time but so I've had a a somewhat of a kind of a relationship with Jason Isbell at least in my mind for 20 years and the fact that he got clean was something I always said out loud too sometimes, but certainly to myself, that if Jason Isbell can do it, why why could I think that I couldn't do it myself? And um and he he is still to this day an inspiration. Patterson Hood continues on um on the substance abuse of Jason Isbell that uh, ended up with him having to leave the band, the drive by truckers. Definitely felt some guilt when things started going wrong with him Maybe we should have handled it differently. Maybe we should have been more aware. Maybe we should have, you know, maybe I should have. Maybe I should have been more aware. I was the one who put him in that van that night. I'm the one who told his mama it was going to be okay. It was very sad. It was very sad. I went to a bar to go get very, very drunk and ordered a double, and then another one, and another one, and another one for five more years. Ordering doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles for many, many years in a row. I certainly understand that. This is a few years later, 2020, and he's shooting a a Zoom film video of sorts performance for CBS Morning, and it gets gets interrupted, and his frustration with the COVID restrictions I just thought was worth hearing on the Stone on Air podcast and the Jason Isbell rock doc running with my eyes closed. I had a little bit of a come apart yesterday. Amanda and I were filming a live performance for CBS and about halfway through the first song, the Amazon delivery guy came up onto the porch and dropped something off. It was sort of a like a breaking point for me. You know, I just told Amanda, I'm fucking tired of this. I'm, I've had enough. I know that we're in a much better situation than most people are, but I've still just had enough of this shit. It just fucking sucks. It's like you sit down to eat a sandwich and all you have are two slices of bread. You don't have anything to put in between it. You're trying to pretend it's a sandwich. And then halfway through it, somebody comes up and interrupts you. And you want to say, God damn it, I'm already just <laughs> eating two slices of bread and pretending it's a sandwich. Why can't you just let me do that? Uh, I thought that was good. This is more from uh, wondering during COVID, are, are there going to be r- real gigs anytime soon? And it was, uh, it was, it was threatening his, uh, his recovery and his sobriety. You know, when's the next time I'm going to play a regular show at the Greek for thousands of people? all crammed in together, jumping up and down and sweating and dancing and having a good time. Is it going to be five years? Is it ever going to happen again? If it wasn't for Amanda and Mercy, I would possibly go back to drinking. Um, Because who gives a fuck? Who's even watching? Who's looking anymore? It's not like I'm going to mess up a, a show. I can't go play one. I'm not going to do that because I spend a ton of time with my daughter and with my wife, and I would let them down. But if they weren't around here, I don't know if I would be safe. I don't know if my 
recovery would be safe. The harm that the COVID global shutdowns did on the entire world, but certainly the United States of America, will be studied until the day we die. The final one, this is his uh, keyboard player at first, Derry uh, DeBorgia, I think is how you say it, and then Isabel again on his sobriety. When Jason went sober, he came out of that experience, I think, a more caring, kinder, more empathetic individual. I fought against my own ability to get better. And when I stopped doing that, all of a sudden I was like, okay, you're not so bad. You're kind of an asshole, but we'll figure that out. And, and then we sat there together, me and myself, and wrote an album that, that changed my life. And it's actually called Running With Our Eyes Closed the documentary on HBO with Jason Isbell. So I thought that would be a good segue into this. Another edition of Stories Maybe I Shouldn't Tell, written on March 10th. I call it Arbitrarily Anonymous. In Major League Baseball, young players are under team control, generally speaking, for up to six years. After three years, the two sides either work out a long-term deal, or as in many cases, or most cases, I should say, negotiate a year-to-year deal. If the two sides can't come to an agreement, which is quite common... They go through a process called arbitration. The independent arbiter looks at both proposals and league averages and then decides on one of the two amounts of the one-year deal. As fans, we tend to view this as a win-loss net result between owners and the players. When we're talking about billionaire owners and millionaire grown men playing a game for a living, it seems like a fair, fair enough process. But when it comes to regular people and regular everyday real life, arbitrary decisions are borderline infuriating. I'm terribly sorry to say that, quote, because I said so is not a satisfactory response to the question, why? I don't have to agree with the decision, but personally, I need to understand how the conclusion was reached. It's the old, quote, the answer is in the back of the book argument. Anybody can get the answer. I need to see you work. I need to see how you got there. It's currently the 10th of March at 925 in the morning. Parentheses, that's 19 days or 285 and a half hours since my last drink, by the way. And I'm sitting in the commons area between meetings, and it was a week ago that I found out my request for an early release was denied. And as you might guess where this is going, I wasn't given much of an answer to the question, why? There is a lot of what feels like arbitration in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. A lot of because I said so going on in here. Now, to the defense of the program and facility, there are, there are plenty of adult children coming and going, coupled with withdrawals from addiction. Sometimes when adults act like children, it's necessary to treat them as such. But for many of us, serious professionals that are following the rules and desperately wanting help with substance abuse problems, but also wanting to get away from the insane asylum as quickly as possible, this process can get quite frustrating. Between the insurance companies, the patients, the therapists, the techs, doctors, and post-treatment leadership, AA and NA in particular, there are a lot of moving parts, differing opinions, emotionally driven reactions, and yes, what feels like very arbitrary decisions. There's 28 days, 7 additional days, 12 steps that used to be 6, 12 traditions incessantly recited, and 90 and 90 are just some of the quick examples that I'll expand on more to conclude this segment. But for now, it's time for Process Group, which is a 90-minute therapy session with a different therapist leading a different group of a different mix of patients every day. I don't have the energy right now to explain the process of these groups, but it appears that arbitration is certainly part of it. And so just to quickly expand for just about two minutes as I wrap up the show, um, I was trying to get out a week early. I was feeling like I was ready and they said no. And they wanted me to stay an additional seven days. And I said, what is seven days? Why not seven more hours? Why not 17 days? Why not 10 days? What's seven? What does seven mean? Well, at the end of the day, seven men an additional payment from the insurance company is what it meant but i didn't get an answer that was satisfying there's 28 days until you're you know the you can be cured quote unquote of your addiction well no 28 days is how much most insurance companies will pay for somebody's inpatient 
the 12 steps of NA and AA, it used to be six, but now it's 12. And then there's also the 12 traditions. And then the asinine suggestion that people leaving treatment in their recovery and post-treatment should attend 90 AA or NA meetings in 90 days. I've already discussed this in past podcasts. Not nine meetings in nine weeks or nine meetings in nine days. 90 meetings in 90 days. Yeah, no thank you. Um, It is good I stayed for that additional week. It helped. It was in the long run in the best interest. But it was somewhat arbitrarily decided, pretty much dictated by the insurance companies and what, how much the check was going to be from inpatient as opposed to outpatient, which is what I was pushing for. I was pushing for a couple additional weeks of outpatient only and to get me the hell out of there. And uh, the, the real answer as to why they said no is because they would make more money if I stayed. Now, clearly, I could have left. I had leverage to do that. But why start something like this and not finish it? And that is the finishing in touch on today's show. Holy hell, that was the fastest hour of my life. Um, I hope it didn't seem as fast and maybe get glossed over as it seemed as I've done it here. I don't have to stop and refill my drink every 20, 15, or 20 minutes or so these days. So it goes by a lot quicker. Uh, That is all. I love you. We'll do it again next week, the third Thursday of the hashtag my month, the best month of the year. It is 420. Next Thursday will be April 20th. I have a feeling I'm going to do a lot of subject matter on smoking pot because that's, well, I'll save all my thoughts for that for the 420 edition of the Stone on Air podcast. Talk to you then. See you later. Bye.